Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where cutting-edge, nationally recognized care is delivered through a compassionate approach. This podcast is for informational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakia. Hello, everyone. I hope you're all out there having a great summer, joint time with friends and family, living your best life. Again, as the intro said, my name is Sanjeev Lakia, and I'm a DO, an osteopathic physician, board certified in physical medicine rehab and integrative medicine. And if you're new to the show, you know I like to bounce around between modernized approaches to spine and orthopedic conditions, where we talk about discectomies with my colleagues. Again, we're the largest neurosurgical practice in the country. But then I always pivot to my true love, which is health and wellness. And today is one of those days, folks. I'm delighted to have a national authority on the topic of health, wellness, longevity, orthopedics, and spine care in Dr. Betsy Yurth. Betsy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sanjeev. It's a real delight to have you. Uh, folks, let me introduce you to her, uh, introduce her to you all. Um, she is a co-founder and chief medical officer of Boulder Longevity Institute where she's been providing tomorrow's medicine today. I love that tagline. Uh, That's so awesome. She's been doing it since 2006 and obtained her medical degree from the University of California, Keck School of Medicine, and residency at University of California, Irvine. And she's also done a fellowship in sports and spine medicine. In short, she's really an expert on orthopedics and spine care. And on top of that, then, she's fellowship trained in anti-aging medicine regenerative medicine, cellular medicine, over 500 plus hours of continued education in these areas of longevity, nutrition, epigenetics, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, peptides, and regenerative orthopedic procedures. And she's going to help me break down today's topic, which is integrative approaches to back pain. Before we jump into that, I really have just enjoyed listening to some of the interviews you've given on some of the other podcasts uh, out there. And I think that's a, your story about how you got yourself into running your own clinic and focusing on health in this manner. I think it's very interesting. I'd love for you to share that with people if you don't mind. Sure. And, you know, it sounds like we kind of have a little bit of a similar background from kind of how we got into this world, right? And that we both sort of went into from the more orthopedic or in your, your case, neurosurgical, but really from that more musculoskeletal medicine approach, mm-hmm. right? So we both got our degrees more in a musculoskeletal medicine field. And then kind of learned along the way that maybe there was more to the story. And so I was in practice with a big orthopedic group for 30 years. But about 17 years ago, I started to get a little bit frustrated because I would sort of see us kind of patch people back together and then they'd fall apart again. Or you probably see this in spines, right? Where somebody hurts the disc, they have surgery on that, and then they're back again with the next level or they have a fusion and then the next level. So I started to get a little frustrated with feeling like, gosh, I'm just sort of patching people back together, throwing them back in the fire and they're back a month later. And with the sort of realm that you never really felt like you got people truly better. It was always like another, you know, another niche of the artwork. So I started to look at, could we do better? Could we actually make people healthier? And in that way, they could actually heal better, heal more completely. and They wouldn't keep coming back into my office. So 17 years ago, I started to really explore that. And I explored how hormones and nutrients and stress and all the other pieces of our lives that were playing a role in orthopedics. 
not just back pain, but your knee pain, your shoulder pain, all these things. And I started to realize that there is a lot of overlap. And unless we actually fixed people, got their hormones better, got their nutrients better, got their diets better, got their glucose managed, they were not going to actually help their arthritis or even heal from a simple thing like an ACL tear. So I started going back and relearning and getting fellowship in anti-aging and longevity medicine. So 17 years ago, we you know started back down that road and then opened, sorry, kind of overlapped the two. I would see my orthopedic patients and I try and talk to them a little bit about hormones and nutrients, but you know how it is, you've got 15 minutes. And so it was a little bit like, okay, I'm really not gonna get very far in this. So we opened Boulder Longevity Institute and I actually wore both hats. All day I'd work in orthopedics and I would see patients here all evening. So I'd come over here at five o'clock and work here until nine. And then really only just two years ago now, I finally, I need to just combine these two because it's, it was number one, both killing me, but I was getting a little bit increasingly frustrated in trying to treat people the way I should, I thought they should be treated with some orthopedic partners who were very conventional. And in fact, straw that kind of broke the camel's back was one of my partners saying to me, you've, you've got to stop ordering labs on people. We don't do medicine here. We do orthopedics. And I was like, oh. That's not really my paradigm. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd better move on. So we really brought the orthopedics over to the regenerative clinic or to the to my longevity clinic. And mostly what I do in the orthopedic realm now is getting people healthier, but also looking at regenerative techniques that we can actually help to sort of reverse things and the damage done too. So you know, about half my practice now is just orthopedics and about half is now other every other disease in the book or really just people who want to age really healthily or I have a lot of athletes who just don't want to get old. So that's, and as we talk, you'll see that those all overlap, that there is no difference between the athlete who doesn't want, want to get old or the athlete who wants to perform at their best and your patients with back pain. The same disease processes are going on, the same prevention has to go on. So that's kind of how I got into this field. I love that story. Maybe when we get offline, I can pick your brain a little bit more about that transition. <laughs> I'm fortunate. I do work in a, a practice that really values kind of how I approach patients. That's great. But there's always room to grow and evolve. And the other thing I would say, folks, is that you're kind of hearing her story. I want to point out how difficult it is as a practicing physician to pivot your career. Number one, getting the training and the knowledge. That takes tremendous amount of time and expense and effort and energy. So it's just fantastic that you're so passionate about helping people out. And for today, obviously... We deal with back pain a lot. And, you know, that's my whole podcast is centered around back pain. When I started this in 2019, I said, I'll never have enough to talk about. And boy, was I wrong because I totally agree. One of my mentors used to tell me the same blood goes everywhere. So if you have sickness in one body part, that metabolic process is affecting every other place. Exactly. And I've learned through my integrative health training and recent training, uh, taking the peptide modules and things like that how to affect everything at once in some way, shape, or form. So let's go ahead and pick your brain about back pain. And I'd just love to get your thoughts, 30,000-foot view, why you think it's so prevalent? I mean, it's one of the number one or two causes of disability and lost work time in this country. Yeah, and I think there's very few people you talk to have not at some point in their life suffered from back pain, right? But not with the chronic disabling pain that so many people have. But yeah, the, the, the scary thing is you're right. It is really, I think, in younger people, the number one cause of disability. And this is work-related years too, right? These are the, the years you should be working, making money. Mm -hmm. and that's the group that seems to be very, very affected by this. If you look back to like 1990s, it was probably like 300 million people. Now you're up to 500 million people who are affected by back pain, actually more than that now. COVID did a big, huge jump 
in back pain. So when you look, I think it was 2017, there was 500 million people. Within COVID alone, it's increased almost 20, 30 million just from those years of COVID. So you have to say, well, why did everybody get back pain during COVID? Nobody was even out doing anything, right? So if you're saying everybody's out skiing and hurting themselves and beating themselves up, and that's why we're wearing out our backs, it doesn't make sense. Because during COVID, most people were sitting in their house watching TV, right? And drinking too much and eating crappy. So when you think about that and you think about, okay, well, that's an interesting that wasn't when people were active and doing things that their back pain worsened. It was when they were sitting doing nothing. And so what I think the big issue here is the same reason we're seeing an increase in every disease. Because as you said, same blood goes everywhere. And every disease is linked to really a very specific cause. And that's just what we call inflammation. It's an abnormal inflammation process going on in the body, right? So our immune system gets defunct. And that can happen for a lot of reasons. It can happen genetically. You don't have as a robust immune system. You have different genetics than I do. Or environmental influences. You eat nothing but sugar. Or there are wear and tear type phenomena that may play a secondary role. Like my first ACL tear was when I was 16. I went on and tore my OCLs, you know, four more times after that. But the key was, you know, why didn't I ever heal? I should have healed. The same thing with backs. You're going to have this active athletes who hurt their backs. They should just heal. When they don't, is there a reason they just don't heal? So I think it's a little unclear why we're seeing a worsening in all of these immune or inflammatory diseases. I don't care if you're talking about obesity, diabetes, cancer, they are all increasing. So we have to sort of say, are we not taking care of people the way we should, which is actually working on people's overall health, metabolic health, what, how do you exercise, how do you eat, and then other pieces that we should we'll get into on this. But I think that that's why all these diseases are increasing. And don't play lightly that this is a big, huge problem that we're going to see worsen over time. It's not just an aging population. It's a less healthy population than our ancestors were. Yeah, I mean, I often kid, like I should change my license plate to L5S1 because <laughs> there is no shortage of lumbar disc disease. It's never going to wait to appear. So my job security is great, but yeah. I'm being truthful. If tomorrow it all went away, I would gladly go do something else because of the degree of suffering that we have to observe as practitioners. It's, it's really hard. Horrible. One of the things you mentioned there was this phenomenon of wear and tear. I practice in uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is about two miles, a few miles over the border from Charlotte. And that is the pervasive mentality in this region is that, well, my back hurts because I spent 30 years on cement floors or something of that nature. And I never discount that because I don't think you ever should discount a patient's story that they believe about themselves. But I know you think a little bit differently when it comes to why we develop disc disease and kind of the process behind it. So I'd love for you to share your thought process on that. Really, it's the same thing you hear with osteoarthritis and joints, right? One of my old partners who was a hip replacement doctor used to say, well, this is the fact that you wore out your hip is just a sign of a life well-lived. And I would argue that's not the case, that all degenerative joint disease and degenerative disc disease is an altered inflammatory process. We're not designed to wear our backs. We're not designed to wear out our knees. We're not designed to wear out our hips anymore than you, the concept that I used my brain too much so it got worn out, right? Mm. So does your dementia patient go, well, I was a really high level astrophysicist, so that's why my brain doesn't work so well anymore. Or you have a heart attack and you're like, oh, well, that's because, you know, I really just used up my heart. It doesn't happen and it shouldn't happen with joints and it shouldn't happen with discs. 
So there's more and more data now supporting the fact that if you have a healthy environment, if you're, everything is perfect and you stand on some floors and you twist too much, bend too much, play football, I don't care what it is, you do not see more degeneration than other people. And this has been now looked at in the past couple of years and probably about 10 different really well done studies. But in most recently, they studies is actually not even published yet. It came out of Russia, but it's not even published, just came out a few months ago, but it should be published next month, I think. And they actually looked at so so they looked at degenerative discs and they looked at so they biopsied out some of the, the nucleus of the disc, the guts of the disc, right? And they looked at the pro-inflammatory cytokines inside that degenerative disc. Now remember, cytokines are inflammatory proteins that our body produces, and they're necessary. We have anti-inflammatory and pro-inflammatory cytokines. So whenever you hurt yourself, like you stood on your cement floor too long, or you bent over to pick up your shoes off the floor, and you hurt yourself a little bit, was designed for our body to do is to create a little bit of inflammation. And that inflammatory response brings in these cells to help encourage healing. And then the anti-inflammatory proteins come in and they say, oh, okay, you guys go away, time to heal up and all is well. So you want this balance of anti-inflammatory and pro-inflammatory cytokines, okay? So keep that in mind. So now if I hurt myself, I bend over, I stand on the floor too long, and these pro-inflammatory cytokines come in and they stay up and the anti-inflammatory cytokines never come up to par to get rid of them. They just stay elevated. Then I'm going to wear a disc. So when they looked inside the discs, these degenerative discs in people, they had very, very high levels of something called interleukin-1-beta, which is also found in synovial fluid of degenerative joints. They found very high levels of interleukin-6, interleukin-17, human tumor necrosis factor alpha, and some very destructive proteases, the proteolytic enzymes that are actually, you look at these proteolytic enzymes, they're actually chewing away your cartilage, they're chewing away your disc, they're destroying your disc. They found very, very high levels. So they said, okay, well, that's a traumatic response. But then they went to the disc above and they actually took a little nucleus, the harder study to do in the US, but you can do these things in Russia and China much more easily. So then they took a little bit of the nucleus of the disc above, right? So this was not the disc that was injured. And they found that there was very high levels of inflammatory cytokines in that disc as well, right? So why is that? Well, is it because there was this change in vascular response? Or is it because this person just has high inflammatory cytokines everywhere? And so when they're injured, they're much more likely to go down this cascade. It's probably a little bit of both. They also did a great study in mice, this was, I think, 2019, where they took mice that they upregulated the inflammatory cytokines. They took mice that were bred to very, very high levels of these inflammatory cytokines. And they really stuck like a, just a little needle hole into the disc. And the disc rapidly degraded, just from a little puncture hole in the disc. It rapidly degraded. When they blocked these, when they used mice that had none of these inflammatory cytokines, and they punctured the disc, nothing happened. The disc healed, it was fine. So it's not the trauma, it's the altered inflammatory response. So this is why you see so many people, after you fuse one level of their spine, right? They come back and now the next level gets to be fused. And everybody's like, well, that's because there's altered forces on it. No, it's because there, you have not addressed the response that you did that surgery, it just upregulated all these inflammatory cytokines, which are in the circulation, affect the disc above, affect the next disc, affect the next disc. 
So you already are dealing with a person who has poor protoplasm in the first place. And, you know, this is really common. You have altered interleukin-1 beta genetics where you make higher levels in people, higher, higher levels of interleukin-6. You can That's why you can see familial histories of different arthritis and degenerative disc disease. And it can be related to dietary influences, medications you're taking, bad glucose control. So there's lots of reasons it's inflammatory cytokines could be, could be high. But we have absolute certainty and absolute proof now that the cause of the degenerative disc is not the trauma, it's the immune response to the trauma. And if you can change that immune response, then you shouldn't see the trauma go on. Same thing, absolutely the same thing happens in joints. So you have a young person like me, I tore my first ACL when I was 60, right? And then I tore another one. And then I, you know, had toward the other side and toward the other side and, you know, finally stopped fixing them and just lived without my ACL. End up with stage four knee osteoarthritis. So if you look at people who have ACL reconstructions, 80% of them, you fix the ACL, all good. 80% of them develop knee arthritis. Why is that? Because you fix the ACL, everything should be good, right? Why do 80% go on to develop knee arthritis? It's because of the altered inflammation. So what we really have to work on is instead of saying, we want to stop this degradative process by, I don't know, fusing the disc or sticking steroids in the disc or sticking even platelets or stem cells, right, into the disc. We've got to first work on this patient's overactive inflammatory response. So that's really, I think, the key and why this is not a wear and tear disease. Look at knees, for instance. And again, knees and joints or joints and spine are very, very similar in terms of the pathology. And if you look at high-level runners, have much less knee osteoarthritis than sedentary people who set their death. So activity is actually good. Moving is good. The more you move, the better off you are. So we know that that does trauma play a role? Yes. But if you did not have an altered inflammatory response to the trauma, you should not go down this cascade. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm just sitting here listening because this is a new way of thinking, to be honest, within traditional medical circles. But I feel like what you've described here is far more empowering than it's just wear and tear. There's nothing you can do about it. Right, I, I think, right. Yeah, I'm sorry you, you played too much. You did too much. I'm glad you had a good time. Mm-hmm. It's not. Yeah, and I love the analogy about wearing out your heart or wearing out your brain. You're, it's, so, it's almost ludicrous. I always get my patients who are having knee, well-shown knee arthroscopy. So scoping a knee and cleaning it up, you know, one of the main bread and butter surgeries here, right? You scope a knee and clean it up, right? you know, and it's been banned in every other country because it doesn't work. It makes people things worse. And I always say, would you go take your mother who has Alzheimer's and, you know, look at the brain, it's all spotty and it's holes in it and go, just go clean that up. You'll be fine. I mean, the same thing is happening, you know, and, and we're just ignoring this as a process. So it really is, it is silly. And again, unless you take those patients that like your, your partners are doing surgery on and you treat them afterwards, you take over their care and say, okay, now we've got to stop this process or you're going to be back here. It's great for the business for my partners. But you're going to be back here next year with your next level being infused. So you've got to take that on and start working on. Now we've got to make you healthy because this is not going to stop here. Yeah. And that's so true. Look, there are cases where people just need surgery, right? There's right. there's ruptured disc, nerve root pain, radiculopathy. Right, nerve herbal, pain. Yeah, the big old disc sitting on nerve where you got to go get rid of it, right? That's why we're the busiest practice in the country. But what you're saying is kind of next level because you know, when next you look level, at the right. data, adjacent level disc disease and stenosis, anywhere 5 to 12%, depending on what you're reading, sometimes more. Um, and people get fearful that it's just a lifetime of more and more surgery. And ultimately, even we want people, the neurosurgeons, everyone wants people to get treated, get better, and stay better. 
And this really opens up a lot of different tools to consider. I think people understanding that this is a disease process and, you know, it's it's not like your fault. There's genetics involved in it. There's But this is a disease. It is similar to rheumatoid arthritis or, you know, these are disease processes. And so there is a little bit of that. Yeah, some of this has been a little out of your control, right? It wasn't just that you beat yourself up or did things wrong or you're too fat. There's a lot of things that honestly are are a little out of your control based on some genetic pieces. Why you can do an MRI scan on a back and and you'll see, even if people have no pain, you'll see 30-year-olds, right, who have multi-level degenerative disc disease. So they started wearing that just that, you know, sometimes the age of 14, 15. So we know that some of those people had high levels of interleukin-1 beta, very, very high levels. And they started wearing their discs very early. So I think there's two, there's a little piece of we can treat this as a disease and really help you a lot more. And that empowers people a little bit too to understand that there is, and obviously you've got to take control of the right. exercise food. We'll talk about those. They all play a huge role in treating the disease, but it is something that you're going to need some help with. I'm more about looking for opportunities than making patients feel guilty. Right. I mean, inflammatory changes in the body. Look, there are a lot of things that aren't necessarily even in our control. Environmental exposures is probably top of the list. Chemical exposures and air we breathe and the chemicals and pesticides in the food and so forth. And I'll educate people about that. And then we can outline some alternatives as you start to really heal internally. Before I move on to the next question, I did an interview recently with Dr. Greg Lutz, who is really known in the space of regenerative spine care. And he kind of spoke on a little bit similarly about how his PRP injections, and we do some interdiscal PRP here in the practice, and what that does to the microenvironment. You're basically validating that with the cytokine issues and the imbalance and even more systemically. I've always wondered about this. We look at autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, you know, the classic one, and I say, is this disease autoimmune per se? I think at a minimum, it's immune. Right. And you can take kind of take it from there. You remember years ago, they were publishing articles about antibiotic usage to help with the degenerative right. disease coming out of Europe, and then it kind of didn't come to fruition. But I've always, always wondered, because when you look in, you know, like you look in functional medicine, talk about the research between the gut and the brain, the gut and the heart the gut and the joints. Well, does it stop with gut and spine? I mean, why? There's a classic, you know, ankylosing spondylitis has some good data on it. Right. I'm really encouraged to hear you kind of share that information about the immune mechanism that may be at play here. All right, let's get deeper into your kind of how you, your lens of how you look at back pain with, let's say someone who comes in to see you. You know, there's different groups of patients. Mine are, my population is largely adults with kind of chronic back pain. You probably see younger athletes or people who are more acutely injured. So maybe share a little bit with the listeners, just your thought process, your lens for how you work up someone with back pain. Well, I certainly see both. I mean, we have certainly a lot of people who have failed everything, right? Who their end of surgery is like, well, we just probably need to fuse you from T12 to S1. And so I get a lot of those who have multi-level disc disease and not a lot of hope in terms of even surgical, you know, surgical options for this. We have a lot of those too. We always like to see the acute injuries. And obviously, if I have somebody, you know, who's a young person with an acute disc, I'm going to send them off, sitting on their nerve root. And I know that simply an outpatient surgery, get rid of that disc can sometimes be the best thing. But we always follow them up afterwards to try and say, okay, now this. So if I have somebody come in, I, I do want, you know, and I know some, like when you're kind of more chronic back pain patients, usually they're coming to you with, they've already had all sorts of imaging, but I like to see imaging. There's a few reasons for that. Number one, if you see things like modic end plate changes, right? So for your listeners, modic end plate changes are when we look at a, at a spine 
you'll see the vertebrae. So you've got this degenerative disc and the vertebrae around it look bright white on an MRI scan, on a T2 image of MRI scan. Mm -hmm. So there's actually inflammation in the end plate of the vertebrae. It's not this, in the end plate of the vertebrae, and that's very painful. So why does that occur? So if you see modic end plate changes, they're very, very, very inflammatory. You know, and a lot of times what the surgeons will say, well, that's because there's too much load on the bone because the disc has worn out so much, but it's not. It's an inflammatory response. There's a change in the vascular flow. So you actually have, have disrupted vascular flow to those end plates. And we know that these proteolytic enzymes that I talked about, something called metallomatrix protease 3 and atom enzymes, these are like the Pac-Man. And so whenever there's inflammation in your back, the proteases are trying to kind of clean that up. But the problem is if I keep cleaning, like if you have a spot on your wall and you keep rubbing on that spot, finally the plaster's gone off the wall. Yep. So I have this chronic inflammatory response going on in my disc. Particle enzymes just keep gnawing away at stuff until there's not even vertebrae left, right? So you start seeing these end plate changes. So when I see that, I know I'm in a very acute inflammatory state when I see motor gameplay changes. That may change my management a little bit because I have to more acutely get that patient inflammation down more rapidly because there's a pretty significant point on. Or if I see things like Schmorl's nose. And so for your listeners, sometimes you'll see the shape of the vertebrae got this little indentation up into the vertebrae. So it's a weird looking. Instead of the disc being just this little oval shape, it's got this weird little blip up into the vertebrae. So Schmorl's nose, and we always say, oh, they don't usually cause pain. But what they are to, is a sign that that person actually started having some wear of their discs at a very young age. Because when we're young, the bone plate, end plates are actually softer. And so the disc herniates up into the bone. So I know square one, this is a person who really has a lot of genetic influence going on. So mm. I, I'll, I'll change my, I'll modify my treatments a little bit that way too. So I do like to get MRI scan imaging. I won't even tell people like all, you know, when you read these MRI scan images, you're like, People get terrified, right. right? And the last thing you need is to be terrified. Sometimes the worst thing you can do is read your own MRI scan images, right? And you're like, oh my God, I had no idea. I recently had to get, and I was actually doing one of those total body MRI scans and I actually don't really believe in them, but one of my patients had a unit he wanted me to check out. And, it's, and I, I was like, my back doesn't hurt. But when I saw my back on this total body MRI scan, like, I was like, holy cow. It started to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had like a scoliosis. I had like a really worn out L3-4 disc. A lot of, I virtually the facetrons. I'm like, it was frightening. I'm like, I'm like, maybe my back does hurt a little bit, right? Right. So I actually be careful about what I tell people in their MRI scan. I, I'll try and say, listen, this is what's causing your pain. And I'm not going into every little detail about what's going on your back. So you guys, when you read your MRI scans, remember, we know that MRI scans show us a lot of detail that has nothing to do with your pain. And it's nothing to worry about. So don't get that into your head too much because that can actually change. It changed how your back feels even from there. But I do like to get MRI scan imaging. It just helps me a little bit with sort of, sort of refining what I'm going to do next. And then I think when we're talking about this sort of full body healing, so think about what's critical. So if I want to look a little bit more at immune function, a simple CBC, right? So simple, just complete blood count. If I have a high C-reactive protein or sedimentation rate, that tells me there's very active inflammation, right? But not everybody's going to have big old active inflammation with chronic disc pain. That, that skyrockets their CRP. But a lot of people will have little signs that their immune system is suffering. For instance, you can look at a complete blood count. All you guys, every one of your doctors will order a complete blood count. They, they, you've got them probably year to year from your primary care doc. And they read them, they go, oh, it's normal. But you can look at little secrets that are in there. For instance, when you look at the white blood cell count, you'll see white blood cells are made up of all these different cells. Right. The ones that are the big infection fighting guys that you need a lot of are the neutrophils and lymphocytes. As we age, 
the lymphocytes start to decline and the neutrophils start to go up. So this neutrophil lymphocyte ratio tells us the immune system is starting to age, starting to get sluggish. Even in young people, it means the immune system is stressed a little bit, right? If I looked at a young, healthy 18-year-old male, their neutrophil lymphocytes are going to be one-to-one. They're going to have one-to-one ratio. As we get older, neutrophils go up, lymphocytes go down. So you can look and see, hmm, your immune system's a little bit struggling there. And then you can look at things like the monocytes. So monocytes, just write your CBC. Monocytes are macrophages, high macrophages. We know that activated macrophages contribute to back pains. So when I see a high monocyte count, that's going to be, and those are all things that hmm, I can say to the patient, look, there is wow. immune stuff yeah. going on we need to focus on. So we can look at simple little things in a, lab, in a, in a basic $6 lab test that give us information about the immune system without measuring every single cytokine in a $300 test. Right. Right. So I always get a CBC and a, a metabolic profile to look at that. But you really cannot downplay, especially in your population of people who are getting to be more in that sort of 40s plus age, you can't downplay how much hormones play a role. Mm. We know in and of itself that estrogen is a key player in disc degeneration, that testosterone is a key player in immune function. So, And we're seeing now young guys, I mean, guys in their 20s that have low testosterone levels. Remember, guys have estrogen too, so their testosterone converts into estrogen. And if testosterone levels drop too low, they stop making estrogen. Well, estrogen is really, really helpful for this. So when that estrogen level drops, they start getting more back pain and more disc degeneration, not just pain, but disc degeneration. So you've got to make sure hormones are optimized or you're not going to make headway, not just because they're paramount to helping the disc, but also because they're for the immune system. The immune system needs progesterone, it needs testosterone, it needs those all balanced, men and women, okay? Men are men don't just have testosterone. They've got estrogen, they've got progesterone. Those all have to be balanced if you're going to help the immune system. And I'm going to help the person age more gracefully and I'm going to help their pain. In fact, there was a great study on progesterone, both in men and women, how much progesterone in and of itself helped back pain. And there's some theories about that. One is that there is actually progesterone receptors on the spine, but two is that progesterone is so useful for our immune system. So I'll measure progesterone levels in my men too. And sometimes give them a little tiny bit of a, give them a smidgen and don't need a lot of progesterone. A little smidgen of progesterone if that's level or low. And sometimes that is in itself helps their, helps their back pain. So I look at that and I look at cardiometabolic stuff because if you've got high insulin levels, if you have high glucose levels, if you have a lot of oxidative stress, so high myeloproxidase or oxidized LDL, if you're in this oxidative stress state, you've got poor glucose metabolism and you've got high insulin levels, your inflammation is going to be higher. So now, You've got this genetic predisposition, maybe, right? So you had one little hit strike against mm-hmm. you. And then you got a little injury. So the inflammation accelerated, right? Two little strikes against you. And now you have an insulin level of 25. And this high insulin is very inflammatory. It really suppresses your immune system. Why diabetics have infections, right? So it really suppresses their immune system. So basically, you've now three, three strikes, you're out. You're going to have back pain. Unless I fix all three of those pieces. I'm not going to get you better. So I think it's really important to look at metabolic control as well. And I think it gets really neglected wow. when you're in a practice like yours, right? Where you're more of an insurance-based practice, I presume. And you have 20 minutes with a patient or 30 minutes with a patient. Sometimes it's hard to sit there and now talk about how are we going to get your glucose managed? Are you Were you saying fasting insulin? That was on your list? Yeah, fasting yep. insulin. Okay. And where do you yeah, like to see that? And um, I like to see a fasting insulin below six. Okay. You know. It's interesting. I'm in the South and (laughs) there, there is stigma for sure with checking hormones for men. And the other stigma I've observed is 
there's no need to check hormones, you're too old. Yeah. So that is real, that is palpable, at least in the insurance-driven world of healthcare. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, and you are, right, you are in a little different population, right? I'm in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, the yeah, fittest Colorado. place in the country, oh, I think. Right, it's a super healthy group of people, right? Now, that said, I'm licensed in 48 states and have patients all across the world. So I do get a taste of your patients as well. And, yeah. you know, and, and I, you know, I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush, but there's cultural aspects to areas. Culture, where I, I agree. Yeah. There definitely is. And, you know, and there's people who are like, you know, why are you checking my hormones? It's my back. And again, I'm getting these patients lots of times who have already been down every other road. So they're like happy to do anything. Mm -hmm. You're getting them a little bit earlier in the stage sometimes. So sometimes a little bit, bit harder to consent. But I think that's where you have People have to see the literature. They have to see the articles that show how important this is. And that it's not like all of a sudden I hit 50, I don't need hormones anymore. Right. If I want to die, I don't. But in general, everybody will feel better with hormones, with testosterone levels optimized, with estrogen and progesterone optimized. And it is really key. And why do people think that you're, everything gets worse as we get older, right? Why does our, my joints hurt more as I'm older? And why does dementia get worse as I'm older? My heart gets worse as my, why are all these aging processes going on? It's because we don't have what we had when we were 20. We don't have the things to help our body repair. So one of my you know, really big things to people is you've got to get the body back into that state it was when you were 20 so that it can heal like it is when you were 20. That includes hormones and the micronutrients you need. So I also will check magnesium levels. I'll check vitamin D3 because we know D3 is really critical for the immune system. And we're again, go back to we think all this is very related to the immune system, right? So you want to take D and... Uh, Vitamin D, you want to look at, at magnesium levels because magnesium is really also important for vascular flow. So you get normal vascular, vascular flow to the disc, which is really important. So I think that those are all things you've got to really look at if you're looking holistically at the patient to try and get the better. And what I love about that is everything you mentioned is readily available through like LabCorp or Quest and yeah. very inexpensive without going down the rabbit hole of expensive functional lab tests that are often offered and talked right. about. You can get a lot of data from what you just suggested. And I will come in all the time with these people who have a new price this, right? They literally have like a stack, this much lab work that nobody has ever gone over them. And I go, yeah, honestly, you could have gotten that same information from looking at a simple CBC and saying this means some stuff. I didn't need every cytokine tested at a $780 lab test to show yeah. up because it was obvious with my simple lab test. Okay. I want to be respectful of your time and energy. And I've got a lot of things on our list, but what I want to really get to and pivot to now, and as much as you're willing to kind of share and dive into are some of the treatment strategies you have, let's say you've, you've optimized, you've got your patient in front of you, you've done their metabolic workup, you've got the counseling and the, you know, the, the pillars of health in place with their nutrition and such. What are some of your go-tos? Um, really interested to hear about your thoughts on exercise, because I know you're big in exercise and fitness. And then obviously you're an expert in peptides. And what are some things that you utilize routinely? Obviously everyone's different, it has to be individualized care. But what are some things you think that people may not be aware of that can be helpful if they're suffering with kind of back and joint pain? Well, I think that exercise has to be number one and and not for the reason all you guys are thinking, right? It's not that exercise will make you thinner and make you more muscular so you're going to support your back. That's all important maybe. But honestly, it's that exercise, your muscle is an organ, just like your heart, just like your liver. We forget that. So when you exercise, that's when you stimulate your muscle to produce what I call myokine. Myokines are very interesting because they actually have far-reaching effects all over your body. So let's say, for instance, I have really high levels of interleukin-1 beta. I do. I have very high levels. My knees wore out. I've got 
fat shoulders. It's at very high levels of interleukin one beta wore out my joints. And what happens when we exercise some of these inflammatory cytokines? So one of the things that happens when you exercise is it pulls these inflammatory cytokines out of your blood into the muscles. Muscles want inflammation. They're gonna, gonna make them bigger, it's gonna make them grow. They want inflammation. So if she pulls these inflammatory cytokines out of the serum where they're hurting your back and doing everything bad into the muscle. So you've lowered the systemic level of these inflammatory cytokines simply by exercising, putting it to the muscle, which helps the muscle grow. So that's number one. Number two, when the muscle releases things, it releases things like brain-derived neurotrophic factor. That's why it's so good for brain, but it's also good for nerves. So BDNF is really good for nerve function. So when you have neurogenic pain, and we know that a lot of back pain is neurogenic too. So when you exercise, you can relieve that. And so the main thing to think about is, yes, it's important to be strong. You've got to have good core strength. You've got to support your spine, right? But the main reason to exercise is because the muscle provides you as it's, it's your medicine. It's going to provide all of these cytokines, these, these myokines, these proteins that go and fix things. They fix your brain. They fix your heart. They fix your spine. They fix your joints. So that's the number one reason. That is any kind of exercise. It doesn't matter if it's aerobic exercise or strength training. Both of those will produce myokines. Myokines are a little bit different, but I think people need a little bit of both. I'm a big proponent of strength training over aerobic exercise, but that's more because I think muscle is just critical to longevity. I think from a perspective of treating chronic pain, it doesn't matter. You just need to move. And one of the first things you see happen when people are in pain is they stop moving, right? Absolutely. You're afraid to move. You're afraid it's going to hurt. Your doctor told you, okay, you just need to lay low. You need to really take it easy. And even post-surgery, you've got to get people moving as fast as possible. You can't keep in bed. You can't keep up. So they've got to get moving. And is it uncomfortable? Yeah, you've still got to move. Because that's honestly what's going to heal you. You really make that point number one. You've got to exercise. And I don't care if it's, it's whatever you can do. It's walking. It's getting an exercise bike. It's working with you know a trainer that can work within a realm of getting you stronger. But don't just think it's because I want you to go lose weight. And it's because the muscle is going to actually cure you. So then what else? Obviously, fixing the hormones, fixing the micronutrients, that all goes along with what I was just talking about to help the inflammation. But I'm going to talk about something that a lot of you guys don't know about. And so I don't know if you, you know much about it either, but you probably heard some of my talks. It's, it's a drug we use a lot. It's called pentacin polysulfate. So pentacin is what's called a repurposed drug. And it's been used, it got approved in Australia in 2019 for treating osteoarthritis. And it's been actually considered a cure for osteoarthritis to reduce their need for hip replacements by almost 80%. Oh, wow. It's coming to the US as a drug called xylosol. So it's, in, it's being rushed through phase three trials as a drug called xylosol. And it will be off, it'll be approved. So when you bring drugs for FDA approval, you have to go with one cause, right? You, you say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use this drug to treat this. Right. You can't say I'm going to bring this drug over and it's going to cure everything. Right. FDA would never give you approval for that. So what they chose is the osteoarthritis because it was it's so the most prominent of the arthritis is here. So that was a, that was their big gun. So they're bringing it over here in the U.S. It's in phase phase rush, actually rushing to phase three, almost phase four trials. They just started signed a big contract with some ex-NFL players to start using it in them. But it is we've been using it. I've been using it since 2019 when it got approved in Australia. But penicillin polysulfate, it's a, a glycosaminoglycan. It comes from a beech tree, the very nice drug. But what it does is unlike any other medication that we have. Because remember those cytokines I just explained to you? Interleukin-1-beta, interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor alpha, 
metallomatrix protease, adamenzymes, it actually reduces all of those. So I'm actually treating the inflammatory process. So if I have a patient, for instance, who hurts themselves, I'm going to start them on penicillin quickly. Uh, if they have surgery, I'm going to start them on penicillin quickly after the surgery to try and reduce that over-response of the inflammatory cytokines. So penicillin polysulfate, the reason we can use it here in the U.S., even though it's not approved yet, is that it is an approved drug in a different form. So again, this is what we call drug repurposing. So it is an oral drug called Elmeron. So Elmeron is a high dose of penicillin polysulfate, usually between 300 and 500 milligrams a day. And if you look up penicillin polysulfate, the first thing that will scare you is a big black box warning about penicillin polysulfate causing a retinopathy. Now there's all these losses going on. But what that was was a dose-dependent response. So people have been on this drug about 15 years. Once they get about a two-gram dose, they started to see rare cases. So in about 11% of people, they started to see damage to the retina, and it was serious. So the drug does have a problem with that. But we can use it subcutaneously. So it's used orally for bladder inflammation because it works really well in reducing the inflammation of the bladder. It doesn't work so well for the spine. But if you do it as a little subcutaneous injection, you just kind of give yourself a little subcutaneous injection with an insulin syringe, it actually works systemically on osteoarthritis and degenerative disc disease. And there was a rabbit study with penicillin that they showed that not only did they stop any further degradation of discs in rabbits that were bred for bad discs, they actually reversed the disc disease. They were actually able to regrow discs. Oh, wow. It also works on what are called neural growth factors. So one of the things that happens is you get these growth factor overgrowth. That's what's causing some of the blood vessels that are changing, causing those modic end plate changes. So you get these dramatic changes in those modic end plate changes pretty rapidly with this drug. Again, subcutaneous injection, we have to get it compounded because it's not available yet as a compounded or as a subcutaneous injection. Xylosol will be. So when it comes to market as xylosol, I don't know if that will help you guys with back pain because it's probably only going to be insurance approved for knee pain. So it still might make it more expensive. I don't know. Yeah. But right now we get this compounded drug. It is a game changer in the arthritis world and the back pain world, honestly. You basically do a little twice a week injection. Its biggest issue is it can create a, it's a weak blood thinner, about the same as a baby aspirin a day. Then I think we'll get some bruising from it and be a little uncomfortable with the injections. Some people, I don't know, I've been using this drug for three years. I have end-stage arthritis in my knees. I'm bone on bone. Oh, wow. I'm pretty bone on shoulder. And I have zero pain. So plus, as all of these other, when you look, article just came out in March on this drug, anti-cancer, antiviral. If you take it orally, really good for the gut. So what we're actually working now on coming up with a very, very micro dose of the oral to see if we can get the benefit of the gut effects on it without the detriment of the eyes. Now, to put it in perspective, even if this drug subcutaneously causes the retinopathy, it would take you 70 years using it on a regular basis to ever hit the dose that caused the retinopathy. So from that perspective, extremely safe. And so it is a go-to for any of my patients with disc disease, especially if I see those end plate changes, right? Because I got to fill those in. I got to get that bone to heal. And that's one of the few things that's going to do it. People will tell you there's no way to get rid of motor end plate changes, except using the spine. Not true. Just like the bone edema you see in the knee joint too, not true. We can fix that. So this drug, yeah, you have to look up the study on rabbits, which is pretty remarkable in terms of that. So the more and more research going on, I will see this drug get bigger and bigger. I think it'll come to market as xylosol in about two years, probably be available. Again, I don't know if that's going to help people with back pain, but if you have knee pain and back pain, yeah, which a lot of people do, then you can probably get it covered by insurance. I don't know what the insurance coverage is going to be yet. I don't know. But what we do now is we basically get a compound and people cash pay it. And it's, it, it can work wonders. Now, it does take time, right? It doesn't instantly heal people. But I do like when you do something like surgery on people, when, no, I'm now I'm increasing that inflammatory cascade, right? 
or I have an acute injury, then I do like to do a course of it then because that's when I'm going to start that process and I want to head it off at the chase. Wow. The other thing I like a lot in my, so if somebody comes to me with really acute pain, right? So you've got this theater disc or degenerative facet joints and they've got, you know, pretty acute pain for some reason. Something just flared up. The facet's got inflammation in it. And I will sometimes still do steroids, one shot of steroids to get them by, right? So sometimes I'll put steroids in there. But are you familiar with A2M or alpha-2 macroglobulin at all? Yeah, I haven't used it, but I know it's an offering through some of the regenerative like folks, uh, vendors for PRP yeah. to kind of inhibit proteases. You look at PRP and stem cells, and I can give you my opinion on why using our own stem cells may not be the best idea in back pain. But one of the problems is that we are, stem cells a little bit less, but we are creating a little inflammation to get the healing going, right? Right. And again, so that's why you'll see all these people after PRP, they flare up and they stay flared up. You're like, oh, I don't know what happened here. It's because their inflammation sort of stayed escalated. So one of the things that when you have an acute inflammatory process, so alpha-2 macroglobulin is this molecule that your body makes. Bodies are really smart, right? They're really designed to heal. That's why when you look at stuff, go back to your body is designed to heal. It's just that as we age or genetics or whatever, we just have less of the things we need to heal. So alpha-2 macroglobulin is this very cool molecule. looks like Pac-Man. It's got like sort of a weird little shape to it. And when there's an injury or something bad going on in your body, your body takes A2M to that site. And the A2M sort of Pac-Man eats up all those bad cytokines and gets rid of them. Then they get excreted out. But it has a hard time getting to things like the disc because it's not very vascular there, right? Or an arthritic knee where sometimes you have low vascular. Or sometimes people genetically just don't make as much alpha-2 macroglobulin. Or they've had chronic pain and they just have lower levels because they've used it up. So what you can actually do is take your blood and filter out using a very you know, kind of detailed pain in the ass system to filter out the alpha-2 macroglobulin. It's a specific size of proteins. You have to go through this filtration process. Not as easy as PRP. It takes a little while. It's about 40 minutes to filter out the, the A2M. And then you've got this H2M where I, now I can inject that back into the disc or around a nerve or into a facet joint to really reduce the inflammation, but also allow the healing to occur. I haven't just blunted all the inflammation like a steroid does where I'm good, bad, it doesn't matter. All I've done is bound out the inflammatory cytokines that are upregulated right now. Once I balance out, then I can do things like penicillin to try and get the patient healing a little bit or other things. So a lot of times I'll do H2M and then, and then once I get everything settled down, then I'll do some of the regenerative therapies. Once I get all the inflammation down, then I'll do the regenerative process after that. And it's pretty cool there. The problem is it's a little tedious, but they are coming up with Cytonics is a company that makes a filter for this. They're actually coming up with a synthetic A2M, which will be really nice when it's available. Not yet, but... Just from a vial. Yeah. I'm curious. Do you think the penicillin then could be part of a post-surgical rehab protocol? Yeah. So I did... So penicillin is a weak blood thinner, so you can't do a pre-surgery, right? That week before surgery, they have to be off of it. A lot of times if I have time up until their surgery, right? So, you, uh-huh. you know, they're having surgery a month, let's say, right. or six weeks, whatever, eight weeks. Do penicillin for a while just to get their inflammation under control and then take them off for the week before surgery and then start them back on it right after surgery. Wow. One of the things I've been using a little more since um, early spring when I was at the A4M peptide course is uh, two of them, uh, BPC-157 uh, and oxytocin. Both in the, I've tried them different settings and I've seen some very interesting results with some patients who have chronic kind of single level discogenic pain. And then also, frankly, even in the acute setting, I've had some interesting results with it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on both of those. So 
huge proponents. I always have those are all in kind of sort of a surgical package, right? Or if somebody has an acute injury. So just for your listeners, uh, I don't know how familiar they are with peptides, but peptides are basically, have you talked to them about peptides before, sir? We have not. No, actually. So, probably... so what peptides are, they're just chains of amino acids. So basically a protein is greater than 50 amino acids and a peptide is less than 50 amino acids. Sometimes they're two amino acids. They're like an arginine and a glycine together. So all they are is a chain of amino acids. They can be synthesized. Just like your body makes hormones, it makes tons of peptides. And again, some of those peptides are really good for healing. So for instance, there's a peptide that your gut makes called body protective compound 157 or BPC 157. When you're injured, or when you have gut, this is a great thing too. Even if you guys are taking anti-inflammatories, BPC 157 as an oral capsule protects the gut from ulcers. But it also, if I have an injury, I hurt my shoulder, I hurt my knee, whatever it is, it will go to that site to try and encourage some healing to occur. So again, this is my body. So all I'm doing is adjunctly helping my body do what it was supposed to do anyway, right? So I give a little bit more BPC-157 because maybe I'm not making as much or maybe my gut's messed up and so I don't have as much. So BPC-157, a really useful peptide for both pain and healing and recovery post-surgery or just from an injury. Usually I'll combine that with another peptide called thymus and beta-4. So when we're babies, we have this giant thymus glands in our chest and that thymus gland makes thymus peptides. One of them, thymus alpha-1, really important for the immune system. Well, that can be useful, right? Immune system we've talked about. Thymus beta-4 is what encourages collagen actin, really encourages tissue healing. So really good for healing after an injury or after surgery. So usually you'll use, but, and again, these are, pep, these are peptides your body makes, but you don't have a thymus gland. Once you get to be old like me, you don't have a thymus gland anymore. You got a little tiny fatty lump of tissue, no thymus gland. So I'm not making thymus peptides anymore. So I give myself thymic peptides, right? I give them back. I'm giving back my body the hormones it's lacking, the thymic peptides, the BPC it's lacking. That way I can heal and recover. So BPC, thymus and beta-4 are the go-to. She talked about oxytocin. Oxytocin is a very interesting, it's called a peptide hormone. So I think oxytocin is our love hormone, right? So when you guys fall in love, you make oxytocin. When you fold your baby, when you nurse your baby, you make tons of oxytocin. So, but oxytocin has some other really interesting properties. And it's very, very helpful for pain. And it's helpful for muscle growth, so muscle strengthening. And it can be really helpful to encourage tissue healing as well. It's my, probably my, unless somebody has acute pain, I'll use oxytocin for pain. But usually I'll go for the BPC, thymus and beta 4, along with pentacin as my sort of, that's my go-to kind of heal stop inflammation package. And then oxytocin, I'll use more along lines to help somebody who has a lot of pain. Wow, I think that's, Really comprehensive. They're hugely helpful too. For, when you guys have an acute injury, go right to BPC thymus and beta four. My kid's friend that sprains an ankle is going to have BPC thymus and beta four right away. Are you having your uh, your clients inject BPC at the site of injury, or does it really not matter? Well, debatable. <laughs> Anecdotally, from a perspective of does it make any sense that injecting it near the joint matters? Probably not. From an anecdotal. Almost every doc you talk to says it seems to work better when you inject, or people you talk to, it seems to work better when you inject close to the site. I mean, even Bill Seeds, who's probably, I think, yeah. super on peptides, he's like, yeah, I think you should inject it next to the site. It, you know, from my own experience. So your spine, it's a little harder, right? So it's in your back. How do you do it? Yeah. But I have people just kind of inject up down near the hip here, somewhere there. But if it's a knee, you kind of grab a little tissue by the knee, the shoulder, you kind of grab a little tissue like that and just kind of inject it in. It seems to be that it does work a little bit better to do the BPC and thymus and beta-4 a little closer to the site. But if that's hard, like you can't get to your back somewhere subcutaneously, works. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Look, I want to back up a little bit, folks. First of all, she did start with the basics. 
You got to get that right. Your metabolic health. Right. Exercise. Uh, get that in play. Exercise for sure. And the issue with the myokines, Betsy, I didn't learn about that in medical school. I mean, there was none of that, at least when I was in training. And to hear you refer to muscle as an organ is really like light bulbs going off in my brain about, well, that makes a lot of sense. Why is it that we tell people with osteoporosis they need to lift weights? Well, right, exactly. there right. it is. Right. Yeah. It's not just load to the bone. Yeah. It actually, the myokines, in fact, muscle and bone play a really close interface. And muscle will, you absolutely will not have have bone growth unless you stimulate muscle. So it's not just the low bone loading, it's actually stimulating the muscle. So moving the muscle. The myokines are, and you're a lot younger than I am, but the really only research is very recent on how important myokines are to our health. And now we know about 2,000 different myokines. We haven't really isolated the purpose of all of them, but it's really incredible what, and that's why exercise is absolutely 100%. Stop moving and you will die. It's really so critical to encourage you guys that I have never taken a day off of doing something. Well, I don't know if it's true, but for, for the most part. And even, and I tell all my patients, they're like, oh, you know, my back hurts too much. I'm like, you've got to do something. I, you know, you get up and move and I'll get them working with somebody. You can find something you can do, but you've got to move your muscles. Yeah. As much about our practice, but we have physical therapy centers at almost all our locations. It's different. When you come to PT at Carolina Nurse Surgery, it's very exercise-based and strength-based. Yeah. And some people are disappointed yeah, because they want someone yeah, to rub right. their back and stem, and, and that doesn't do much of anything long-term. The ultrasound and the massage, right? But we get people much better, and I'm wondering if that's a big part of it. For me, I just, as I, I'm 48, so I'm certainly more aware of my health and my hormones and all that. And I've, I'm always modifying my lifestyle. So what's really been working well for me has been more frequent weight training. And then I use the rowing machine in between my weight training sessions. And I, I just feel like this big boost of energy and I just feel stronger. So I encourage people out there really practice, you know, what she said, it doesn't quite matter exactly what you're doing, but get your body moving and get yourself healthy. As we wrap up, I would love for you to share if you're comfortable as well, some of your kind of daily routine on how you just mentioned, look, you've, I give you a lot of credit. You share a lot of information just about your own health and some of the challenges you've had with shoulders and knees and all that. And I love that because sometimes as doctors, when you're a physician and you're having some issues that are similar to the ones you treat people with, like when I hurt my back years ago and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a podcaster talking about back pain. I hurt my back. Right. I'm a fraud. Like I'm, I'm, It's just <laughs> embarrassing. But then when you share that with people, you can actually, what I found is, is I connect better with them. Yeah. Like when someone says they hurt their back and they feel like someone right. shot yeah, them I've in been the there. back. I know what it feels like, right. Been there, done that. And frankly, physicians are under the highest level of stress of almost any profession, especially since COVID. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that as well, kind of your daily routine. Yeah. So I, you know, I prioritize exercise and I have to, for me, that means I have to get it done first thing in the morning to keep me kind of committed to it. I have a workout buddy. I meet at the gym at five in the morning, every morning. Having somebody, be it your PT that you go work with or your trainer or a friend, somebody who commits you because it's really hard to get yourself sometimes, you know, to the gym every day. So having somebody you're committed to and, and you know, if you get up in that morning, you're like, I don't feel like working out today, then you walk, mm-hmm. you do something, right? But that's just got to be a commitment. You have to say, this is, if for me, if I put till the end of my day, it, it's by the time I get home from the office, sometimes nine o'clock at night, I'm just not going to do it. So five in the morning, I get up, I exercise, you should exercise fasted. There's a lot of controversy around fast and non-fast, and I don't know if that's all that pertinent here, but but you just got to move. And then I number one, I eat, I keep my body in very strict metabolic control, and I think that's really important. You guys too is prescribing a continuous glucose monitor to my patients so they can see 
what foods are spiking their glucose. Right. Sometimes people think, oh, I eat really well, I'm really healthy, and, and then I, and and I'll put a CGM on CGM on them, and then it's great because they I got their data in front of me, and I'm like, oh, look, you spiked your glucose up to 180. What'd you eat? So it keeps people really honest sometimes in terms of you know of glucose spikes. Every time you're spiking your glucose, you're spiking your insulin. Every time you spike insulin, you increase inflammation. So so I think really strict. So I eat primarily so a very high protein, lower carb diet. I struggle with optimizing my sleep. It's so critical, <laughs> but I'm really not great. I stay up too late. I don't get enough sleep. I wake up in the early in the morning. But I will say that as we know more and more and more that that circadian rhythm getting disturbed, so those you know which is called a bowel gene and clock gene, those two genes are really influence inflammatory process too. So really, guys, it's important to sleep in the dark. It's important to use blue light blocking glasses at night. All those things that trouble your brain. It's nighttime and get good rest because that is a healing recovery, immune restorative state, right? No, for sure. I'm, I'm also saying that one of the biggest things we know now is the importance of hydration, that we're mostly all dehydrated. And that plays a really big role in back pain too. So you've got to make sure that you're you're actually drinking enough. I mean, most people are actually running around this world dehydrated. Well, yeah, and they're drinking more coffee than water. And that also is a diuretic. Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> oh, that doesn't help. Yeah, I mean, you've got to, I mean, I try and get through, you know, a couple of big jugs of water every day, right? And yeah. Like, you've got to make sure you're staying hydrated. That's so important for cellular health. Your cell really relies on being, you know, osmotically stable and that is good hydration. So, so I really try and prioritize hydration. And you take a, a pretty big, but not too many supplements. I'm not a big fan of these people taking 70 supplements. I have people come in or I'm taking a list of 80 supplements. It's, it's ridiculous. But I, have a, I certainly have about, you know, 12 supplements I take on a regular basis. I do rotate peptides. So... I take hormones and I rotate peptides. So I'm keeping everything, particularly the peptides my body makes, BPC, thymus and beta-4, thymus and alpha-1, a peptide called modest C that your mitochondria makes. So I'll rotate through that cycle. Again, my paradigm is replace everything I'm losing. Mm. I'm 62. I don't have estrogen. I don't have testosterone. I don't have progesterone. If I don't give them back to myself, I don't have them. If I don't give myself back some of those thymic peptides, my immune system is going to fail. So I need to give back the thymic peptides. So, so I'll, I'll cycle those and they're expensive. So I don't take them continuously. I'm cycling them on and off to make it a little more cost-effective. The growth hormones to creagogs are called CJC nip and relin to keep my growth hormone levels higher. So I think that that's probably, I think when I always tell where do you need to start? It's in the what to fix first. So I, we have a whole course with this academy called Human Optimization Academy that you guys can look into, but it's just courses on you know, how do you actually in one sense become your own doctor? Because not everybody has a great doctor like you, right? And so, and I snooped on you a little bit and I saw the patients saying, well, yeah, just plan ahead because it takes a long time to get in to see him because he's so good. You know? So you, know, you just can't see everybody. I'm trying, folks. We're trying to get people in. <laughs> <laughs> but but everybody, yeah, it was like, he's worth it. So the key is that you need to be able to take some control of your own health. So you can go in there and you can now have these sensible conversations with Sanjeev or whoever your doctor is. So this Human Optimization Academy, if you Go to the what to fix first course. And it talks about you know, kind of saying, here's start here, go here, go here, go here. So people have a stepwise approach to how do I just take control of this health without you know everything trying to do everything every Instagram influencer is telling me to do. That becomes ridiculous. You know, I'm yeah. No, I love that. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. People, if you're listening, go ahead and check that out. That's amazing that you've taken the time to put that material together for people to learn how to take care of themselves. Yeah, even things like reading your own labs a little bit, like knowing to understand that new lymphocyte ratio, those kinds of things. So people can look at those labs and say, oh, I do have immune problems. So what about the days when you're just like, 
you've had enough of guys like me peppering you with questions about back pain and patients asking about hormones and all these things. And I know you're, you've got a family as well. What's your go-to kind of de-stress mind-body tool? I, I have five kids. I've mostly grown now. My youngest is 16. My oldest is 27. We love, so every year we prioritize traveling. So I, I love traveling. And we, and we do trips kind of differently than most people. And then we just throw backpacks on. We, we figure out the starting destination. And then we should, what country we might go in. We just did Spain and Portugal. And then we just pretty much wing it. We were like, oh, this looks kind of the day before we research. We say, let's go here. We find somewhere to stay, usually in hostels and places like that. So we do these trips that are two, three weeks long that are literally just, we don't go to a resort. We don't, we just put on our backpacks where we're mobile. We, you know, you hear people talking or you read something and you're like, oh, let's go here. Let's go check this out. So nothing is really planned. And then the most fun thing is usually with my whole family, my five kids and, you know, and it's by far my favorite thing to do. But I love, I live in Boulder. I love mountain biking and hiking here because it's so easy for me to get out and do that. Not a big road cyclist because everybody seems to get hit by cars, but. um. (laughs) That winging it is is the exact opposite of how we do. How you do? I know it wouldn't well, it wouldn't as, work as, for as us. But, uh, so we started doing this even when my kids were young, and like my youngest, I remember my youngest is a five year old actually carrying his little backpack, and and it's funny because I have one kid who does not really do well with it. She doesn't like that that sort of more winging it kind of thing, but everybody else has gotten into it. I think it just makes you a little bit more open to you know life will hand you the good things and the bad things, and you learn from them all. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right. If people are listening and they want to get a hold of you, maybe even get a consultation set up with you, how can they do that, Betsy? Um, so borderlongevity.com, you go there and there's a sort of information sheet you can just put your name into and it will sort of guide you. So it's all pretty easy to do. Human Optimization Academy is bli.academy. So bli.academy, if you just put that in, okay, then you will be able to kind of look at the Human Optimization Academy stuff. And there's some free courses and there's some, some that, that you become a member of that. We're really trying to grow that membership because we do these very fun Q&As. I, one of my big passions, honestly, is staying one step ahead of, like even when you learn at A4M. So we have a whole group, the Southern Medicine Group, which you should come to, that is a little bit the forefront. Like every time I go for A4M, I'm like, oh, this is all old stuff now, you know? And it's, it's finding the stuff that's the next level. So we're trying to sort of bridge that gap between what's proven effective in research and get it to people earlier. So that's where we have these Q&As. A lot of doctors are involved in it, but it's very fun and interesting for you guys. So go to bli.academy. And then if you just want to learn about things like penicin, you go to bli.glossary. It's our glossary. You can put in penicin or whatever you want, some peptides name, and it'll give you references and what it is. So it's a nice little source to go to when you hear these words. You're like, I don't know what that is. So you can go there. We tried to put together a bunch of articles there for you and things. So. Those are just three sources, borderlongevity.com, human optimization is bli.academy, and then bli.glossary. This is awesome. I'm going to force all my partners to listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're going to sit down and have a talk about it. Uh, it's definitely thought-provoking. Certainly, you're on the forefront of care. And you've really given me a lot to think about, too. And that's one of the things I love about doing this is I learn as much as I give. And then we can spread it to people uh, to better their lives. So. Thank you again so much for your time. It was a real delight. I know you're super, super busy. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I appreciate to have a, another colleague in this realm. <laughs> yes, yes. It's good to have friends. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. And look forward to um, collaborating in the future. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates with offices in North and South Carolina. 
If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lakia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com.